Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby, joined as always by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. Uh, we're, we're back outside again, and it actually cooled off in freaking Texas. We had rain. We had like three whole days of rain. The temperature dropped. I think we might be cruising towards fall, Matt. Uh, we are not really because it's still August and September doesn't count as fall in Texas. It really doesn't get to fall weather until we hit like the middle of November. October still has a tendency to be like mid 90s. So I don't think I can qualify that as fall. Let me have hope. I will. I mean, I, I want to crush. It. I want to crush your hope so that you're not disappointed later. Oh, okay. Was that fair? <laughs> so, so disappoint you now, so you're not disappointed later. <laughs> you're you're hurting me, but it's to help, help. me in exactly. the long run. Okay, yeah, it's, cool. and I'm hurting you so that you don't hurt more later. Your altruism is staggering. Thank and, you. Yeah, well, you know, I do what I can to uh, to assist in in any way possible. Um, but I am I'm doing good, Lyndon. I think um, I finally hit I finally hit the frustration point. With this game, which we thought we were going to hit right out of the gate, and we didn't. We are now more than halfway through the game, and we finally hit the frustration wall. Well, you're speaking for both of us. I'm not. I'm not uh, co-signing that message. No, I I mean I hit the frustration. Okay, cool. More than halfway through this game, which is way better than I ever thought it would be. Well, we'll talk about your your mystical wall of frustration here in just a minute, Matt. Is it mystical? Uh, I don't know, but either way, you should stop flipping the top of that cigar lighter. No, uh, that's what I'll pick that, it up on the. Yeah, well, that's yeah. fine, but also it's a it's a nervous tick. Not nervous. Nervous isn't the right word. It's an ADHD tick that I have uh, that is shared by some of the great Formula One drivers uh, of of all time. Like uh, <laughs> that's cool. James do Hunt. Do, do like the, James Hunt. <laughs> does Does James Hunt do a lot of audio recording? James Hunt's dead. Damn. So how do you feel about that? Yikes. You just made fun of a dead guy. Ouch. <laughs> yeah, I feel terrible. Uh, no, uh, everything's great. Uh, we're here recording. It is Thursday. Uh, we normally record on Wednesdays, but today is Thursday. It's a, It's been a good day. It's been a good week. It's been a long week. Um, we are cruising towards uh, the end of August, beginning of September. Yeah, it's just been it's been fun. I think uh, this is going to be a great episode. We've got another great guest lined up. We've had a good week of uh, hanging around and talking and shooting the shit with our uh, wonderful friends over on Discord. So I think we're set up for success here. Absolutely. I'm going to seize your segue that you just set up for me. I did that very intentionally. I'm going to take it. I'm going to run with it. No one can stop me. I'm going to choose this opportunity to uh, introduce our guest for this week. Uh, You know him, you love him, uh, Mr. Max Nichols, who is joining us again for the first time in season six to talk about a game that none of us have played to completion. Max, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, Excited to be back. Hasn't been that long this time. It wasn't like the seven-month gap between the two Breath of the Wild episodes or whatever it was. But uh, <laughs> I'm very excited to be kind of playing along in a, uh, with a game that I don't know that well. Uh, I have fresher eyes, uh, which, is, which is fun. I'm finding that to be uh, quite a fun time as well. As So uh, this is, you know, obviously I think you've played more in the Zelda catalog than I have. 
Um, but this is the first game that we have uh, gotten to that I have not played at all. And there are others that we'll get to later, but this is the first one. Every other game that we've played up until now, I've got quite a lot of experience with. And so for similar reasons, this has been kind of like a really fun and refreshing thing for, for me. And I think, uh, I think, uh, Catter, not Catterwall, and Kvetching aside, Matt would, I think, probably say the same thing. Oh, for sure. But, uh, so you said quite a lot of experience with all the other games. I thought you only played Link to the Past like once. I've played Link to the Past like three times. Okay. Would you qualify that as a lot? What qualifies as a lot of experience? Well, definitely more than this. Well, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> this is a. I- Oh, sorry, go ahead, Max. I would Max. generally say that playing a game through, beginning to end three times, is a qualifies you as experienced. Thank you. I like that. I'll, I'll take that qualifier and I'll run with it. it but has, this would the, be your, this, are, when we reviewed it, was your third time. Yes. The parameters have now been defined. I think that you should accept <laughs> it and we can move no, on. No, I think that we're saying that you are now healthily experienced or have a lot of experience with A Link to the Past, whereas previous to reviewing it, how thin? Do, how thin do you want to split this hair? Like, really? I want to split it as thin as I can to pop your ego bubble. I, that's that's what I want to do. That's my whole goal right now is pop that ego bubble. But the thing is, so while you're your self worth exactly on. Uh. <laughs> See, Max gets it. Even though I know he's kind of not not agreeing, but I'm going to take it and run with it. The so. thing is, while you're talking, Max is not talking, and I I want to hear from Max because I love it when we have Max on. So. Well, and I talk to you all the time. You live here. That's true. But you talk to Max every day because y'all are coworkers as you continually bring up. I, over should, I actually do not talk to I do not talk to Max every day. I, I we, we should talk more, Max. We really should. I think Sounds we both like get busy. Problem. Sounds like we a you tell problem. our leads that we should collaborate on stuff instead of not collaborating. <laughs> instead of not. <laughs> we should do the thing instead of not doing the thing. I love that. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'm going to tell my boss that next time I want to do something. We should do this thing instead of not. <laughs> it's awesome. I'll run that up the ladder. We'll see how it goes. So, um, yes, absolutely. What? No, I have a question I want to ask Max. It's, oh, okay. it's something we need settled. Okay. Because this came up on our last oh, episode. You're right. We yeah. have a very important question for very, you. Very, very important question. Oh. Came up on our last episode, which aired yesterday. There is. Massive amounts of debate among the Sacred Realms triarchy that is myself, Lyndon, and uh, the detective, which has spilled over into debate within our Discord channel. And that is, what is Max Nichols's real name? Is it Maximilian or Maximus? Or uh, what was the other one? No, it was Max. those were the two that we like had canoned into existence. No, there, there were three. What if I said it was Maximum? Maximum, <laughs> just maximum nickels. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, the name on my birth certificate is just Max, not short oh. for anything. Well, I we're gonna head to put on like Roman Empire heirs and like say I'm Maximilian. So, w- which would you prefer though, Maximilian or Maximus? Yeah, mm. Cody wants to know, and we got it. We got to tell Cody. <laughs> I would probably go with Maximilian. Dang it! I have been defeated. It's got more syllables. So that means it's better. Oh well, I mean that's that's hard logic. That's hard logic to argue with. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. Definitely, I get that. I'd probably, I probably would have answered the same. So there you go. <laughs> cool. Well, well, thank you for settling that debate for us. Uh, yeah, we've been on uh, pins and needles. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh when you're not when you're not answering completely asinine questions about what your real name may or not may not be um how how have you been doing max i've been doing good uh so i'm trying to think had i moved yet you had last episode i had okay i just moved so now i'm a good i don't know month month and a half the last episode you were on, you had both moved and gotten married prior to the recording of that episode, which was a yes. kind of a shell shock for us because it was like, wow, you had like two major life updates happen in the time span <laughs> that it got us that we had you on the on the pod. I, I had also gotten engaged in that time. Uh, I think you were on the first time you were on. You had like just recently gotten engaged. <laughs> gotcha. Um, so I can't top that. But, you know, we've been we've been settling in just finished building a fence so our dogs can play outside without us having to worry about them taking off down the road or being eaten by coyotes or anything. That's um, important. It's really nice to be able to let, just let them out, which is not an experience we'd had before. Um, and other than that, we're just kind of trucking along, doing good. Nice. Very nice. Uh, glad to hear that you're enjoying the new place. I know you showed us some pictures of it last time we recorded, and it, it looks darn cozy. So I'm glad y'all are happy with it. We, of course, are going to get into a conversation about the original Legend of Zelda here in just a minute. Um, you know, I think of the of the core roster of guests that we bring on uh, on a continuing basis, um, the only person we've really been able to talk to this about so far is Mike the Detective. Um, later in the season, we'll have Hyrule Podcasters on. Um, we're going to get something set up with Cody. Like, we're going to have others to talk about, but I think uh, – from people within the Zelda fandom and also who, you know, work on video games professionally, this will be the first conversation about this game that we've really had in that vein. So I'm really excited about it. Um, before we do that, I want to go ahead and get some housekeeping out of the way because I think this is going to be an interesting conversation and I, I just want to get straight to it. So let's go ahead and do that. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly reexamination of The Legend of Zelda one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game. Then we sit down here to talk and drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to our Discord channel, listener mail, vote on what game we play next, and so much more. Um, I do just want to say, we've been kind of shouting it out in every episode that we've done since this got spun up, but uh, Max, as a frequent contributor on our Discord channel, uh, I do want to say, one, thank you for for being involved with that, Um, and yeah, two, just like uh, if you are on the fence about getting into our Discord channel, just know that uh, this brilliant human being who's on this show with us is uh, is involved in that community. And so there you go. You can have a Discord conversation with Maximilian Nichols. And also the entry fee for that is one measly dollar a month. There you go. <laughs> you can finally see how uh, endlessly I just talk and talk and talk when there's no one responding um, in like the minute I'm talking and people come back to the discord 20 minutes later and they're like, crap, Max spent, you know, 20 minutes writing 50 messages because no one said anything. Hey, I will say that you are one of those people who like you break up your texts into like multiple things, right? Instead of writing one big long text, you have like 10 medium length texts, which 
I do the same thing. So I don't, I don't knock you for that. Any, I don't knock you for that at all. Uh, but I love watching like the little text bubbles be hanging out in the bottom left corner of, you know, Max Nichols is typing. Something pops up. That's pretty long. Max Nichols is still typing. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to just put this down (laughs) for a minute, let him continue. And then once he's done, come back, read the whole thing and then just like give my two cents. And it's always really great. And it's always really fun, but, uh, you got to give Max Nichols, uh, some, some room to breathe as he, uh, waxes philosophical about game design <laughs> it's the it's the perfect size community small enough that everyone can know each other big enough that there's there's activity um so i'm, I'm enjoying my time there a lot yeah, that's that's kind of what we thought too which is why we didn't make it public to all of twitter because we we've enjoyed the intimacy is no that's right that's yeah right. intimacy is the right word yeah yep. we, we've enjoyed the intimacy of our, of our little community and i think we've got a really great group of folks that encourage each other and have good conversation and uh just like to hang out and talk zelda and talk yep. video games in general and we even spun up a dungeons and dragons uh sub channel because we had you know four or five folks that were really into that and like Lyndon and i aren't necessarily but that's about the community not about us so um you know, just good place to hang out. Yep. Very happy with our decision to keep that uh, within the, the Patreon community. Um, I think we we have been very rewarded by that decision already. So good stuff. Of course, one of the other benefits that we offer to all members of our Patreon is that Master Sword patrons and above get their names read every week here on the show. Those legendary individuals are George, Mike, Dylan, Allie, Lennon, Leviticus, Kolku, Rowan, Joshua, Nick, Keep It Going Pod, Dante, Gep, Mary, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, our intrepid Discord admin. Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Tyler, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, a.k.a. Maximilian Maximum Nichols, Garrett, and Drew. Uh, Y'all are all legendary individuals. We could not make this show without your generous support. Thank you for being the greatest community that uh, two dudes who just decided to spin up a Zelda podcast one day could ever ask for. (laughs) That's about as accurate a description as you can have. It's us. It's us. (laughs) Woo. (laughs) All right. But without further ado, let's talk about what we played. We do that, of course, every week in the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, we're covering The Legend of Zelda Chapter 3, which covers another two dungeons, Dungeon 4, which is Snake, and Dungeon 5, which is Lizard. Um, Part 1 is, as always, the plot recap, this week as read by Matt. Matt, take it away. As we leave the third dungeon with our new raft in hand, we make sure to make some stops at shops around the area. Here we find a nifty new magical shield that can repel fire and energy balls, as well as the arrows, spears, and rocks that are hurled our way. Using the raft, we can sail to an island in the far northeast of the map, and on this island, there is what appears to be a cave made of ice, with another old man inside that offers up a piece of heart to increase our life force. As we make our way back along the coast, we stop in at the money-making games we found to gamble for some rupees and even stumble, stumble into another cavern with a cowardly moblin that pays us out to not strike it down. As we head back west, we come to, to a lake on the southern and western part of the map that has a dock made for rafting. Using our new tool, we push off and head towards the island in the middle of this lake where we hope to find our next dungeon. Sure enough, the fourth dungeon lies on this island, and within, we find a couple new enemies to join the ranks of the monsters we are familiar with. 
The like-like tries its best to catch us and munch our new magic shield, and even though it is tough as hell, we beat it back and claim some loot from it. Another new foe is the deadly Vire, which once killed releases two bats in its place to torment us. After killing a slew of these foes, we realize that they never drop any loot, and we very grumpily make our way further in. In this serpentine dungeon, we find another highly useful item, the ladder. Along the way, we also find another nightmare from the recent past, as we stumble into another Manhandla. Like its sibling, we defeat uh, this carnivorous monster, which stood no chance against our bombs. The ladder allows us to traverse small gaps in the floor easily, and gives us an enemy-free area from which to launch attacks. This handy tool is vital to progressing through the rest of the dungeon, as many of the rooms have doors on the far side of one of these chasms. We find the customary old man in the dungeon, who tells us this time to walk into the waterfall as his piece of sage advice. Knowing nothing at all about what he's talking about, we head on to find the boss of the dungeon and the piece of the Triforce that it guards. The fearsome two-headed dragon monster Gleok is the guardian of this dungeon, and his fire blasts luckily do nothing to our new magical shield, but his heads bob and weave around to bite us from every angle, and after severing one of the beast's heads, it detaches and flies around the room blasting away at us, as if still attached to the nervous system of its host. Ignoring this airborne cranium, we work our way through the neck of the second head and bring the monster down. And as predicted, the fourth piece of the Triforce is within, and we claim it for our own. From here, we journey further into the land of Hyrule, and after the difficulties encountered in the last dungeon, we look for more ways to increase our own power. We head back to the east across the blistering desert and use our ladder to snag a heart container that has been taunting us since we first visited the eastern coast. From there, we head back south and west until we come to the lake, and instead of going across to the dungeon, we venture around its shores. We find in a nook at the northwestern shore a group of six Armos statues, which are quick work with bombs and swords. One of these Armos was guarding a secret staircase, which leads to a new merchant carrying many expensive and useful items. One of these is a blue ring of power, which doubles our defense and gives us a nifty set of white clothes. Feeling very like Gandalf the White, we head out to find the next dungeon. This dungeon lies in the north of the map in the very hills of Death Mountain. There is a secret to reaching it that was told to us by an old lady under the waterfall who charged a fee for her information. We take the northmost staircase four times in a row to unlock the secret of the mountain pass and find the fifth dungeon hiding there. It's a very good thing we took the time to upgrade our power between dungeons because these enemies make everything before them look like red octoroks. The dungeon is littered with fast-moving and hard-hitting Pulse voice. While these buggers are tough against swords, one arrow will spell the doom of as many of these enemies as it can hit. Gibdos also haunt this area, as they shred our health even through our fancy new clothes. But the most fearsome and dangerous of all is the Blue Dark Nut. These enemies travel in packs, and they move erratically. Just like their red siblings, they are immune to damage from the front, but they peck a hell of a wallop and are stacked with armor and health that can make a grown man cry, which I did many times. This dungeon also introduces a new twist, underground caverns that connect from one section to another and pop us out gods only know where. 
Luckily, our handy map helps us find the way out, and we even get so lucky as to find a merchant that will sell us an upgraded bomb bag. Now carrying 12 bundles of explosive joy, we push on through the dungeon. We find a room with three Dodongos in it, and using our newly expanded explosive collection, make short work of them. In this dungeon, we find another new item, the flute. This flute plays a nice, soothing melody when played with skill, but we aren't exactly sure how that is going to help us here. Nevertheless, we move along and come to the room that houses this dungeon's boss. The giant eyeball that we call Dig Dodger is flailing around the room while some pillars in each corner shoot energy balls at us. Dig Dodger is completely immune to swords, arrows, boomerang, and even our handy bombs. And after taking a few hard hits and mostly avoiding the fireballs as best we can, we turn to our newest item in desperation. After playing the melody, Dig Dodger shrieks and its defenses fall. We rush forward with our white sword and bash it to death before it can recover. In its wake, another heart container appears, and we quickly take the door to the room containing the piece of the Triforce. As we leave the dungeon, we set our sights towards greater power to help us traverse the challenges to come. We are now more than halfway to the goal of completing the Triforce of Wisdom, which means that our journey will only increase in difficulty from here on out. But with that knowledge comes the satisfaction of knowing that we are that much closer to bringing down the evil Ganon and rescuing the princess. That takes us to part two, which is our takes where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. So before we even get into part two, um, or I guess before we get into a specific area of part two to, you know, where we talk about the area of the game around dungeons four and five. I want to give you Max some time uh, to kind of catch us up with where you have landed on this game generally so far, because Matt and I have, uh, you know, we've gotten a lot of airtime over the three episodes we've done already to talk about the ways in which we were um, surprised by the legend of Zelda and also the ways in which it kind of lived up to the expectations that we had kind of put upon it on our on our own end of things before going in and playing it for the first time um so since this is also kind of a you know a new experience for you playing it front to back in this way uh yeah i just i'd love to hear just some off-the-cuff thoughts about where you're at with it yeah so i'm I'm in kind of a weird position because i'm simultaneously intimately familiar with many details of zelda one especially its development probably more so than almost anyone else out there while not having actually experienced kind of the latter, the last third of the game. I have actually tried to play it many times. Uh, I've played like the first four dungeons numerous times. And I've, I've historically, I've always hit a wall around dungeon five or six, uh, where it becomes too hard for me, um, to play it without getting really frustrated. And I usually kind of trail off and go play something else when that happens. Um, so I've had a lot of experience just with the general gameplay of this game. Uh, one of the things I'm doing differently this time is I am uh, mapping as I go. You know, I started, I started playing, I played the first couple dungeons, of, well, Dungeon 1, and I found Dungeon 3, and I spent like an hour trying to find Dungeon 2, and I couldn't find it. It's kind of tucked away. And I finally was like, you know what? I'm going to map this game. I was kind of determined to play it in an authentic fashion, like someone would have played it in 86, 87. Um, 
So I didn't want to just go look it up. I wanted to, you know, have that experience of like mapping it out. And I, I loved it. I started, I got some graph paper. I started mapping out um, at a high level of detail. I was mapping out like per tile on the map. Uh, each screen is 16 wide and 11 tall, by the way, which I have now memorized for life. Um, so I, I did that for a long time. And it was, it was actually like very transformative to the experience. Uh, I didn't, suddenly the thing I cared the most about was filling out my map. Um, I don't know if you've ever played a game where there's like fog of war and like, have you ever felt that, like that urge to, you know, go clear every corner of the fog of war in a, in a map in a game, like an RPG maybe. Um, I, I mean, I, so I know, I know the mechanic that you're talking about. Um, those aren't the sorts of games that either Matt or I play a whole lot of, uh, so no is the answer to your question, but I know I know what you're saying, and I I I, I empathize or sympathize. Which is it? Is it empathize? Uh, sympathize. I'm on board with it. I get you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some old Bioware games did that, but that might have been a little bit earlier generations. Um, in any case, it's a similar kind of motivation and and pleasure where like you you finally you see the darkness receding before you. Um, in many games, it's on your mini map or a map screen. For me, it was on the paper that I had out in front of me. Uh, and that was a ton of fun. Um, it made me care a lot about each space in the map, each, uh, each screen, even those that otherwise are pretty empty. Because there are a bunch of relatively empty, like there's nothing there, screens in Zelda 1. Um, I did eventually hit a point where I was like, okay, I need to just... This is starting to get a little old and then I stopped doing that and kept playing normally from there. Uh, but by that point I'd kind of found I'd mapped the whole Eastern half of the map and I thought I could just figure it out from there. So yeah. you, so you, your intention is not to continue doing that for the rest of the playthrough. It is not. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, I, I solved the original problem and then I was just doing it for fun and now I'm enjoying it a little less. So I'm done. Cool. All right. Uh, I, I am curious. So I, unless I'm completely making this up, um, I believe you've told us before that you have done something similar with Link's Awakening, right? I have not done it with Link's Awakening because Link's Awakening has good uh, built-in maps. Right. But maybe, I don't know. Did you ever as a kid like maybe draw a map or like... Is this somebody else that I'm well, thinking? Well, I mean, of? yes. I used to draw maps um, that were not not gameplay maps, but just kind of just for fun, like oh, gotcha, pictures and stuff. And I definitely drew a lot of Zelda stuff. And as you probably realized after talking to me so many times, I'm obsessed with like landscapes and environments and stuff more than almost anything else in the series. So yeah, a lot of what I drew was maps. Maps I imagined that I wanted new games to be taking place in, or maps of the games as they are. So the the question I was kind of wondering about is, you said that the ratio of a screen on The Legend of Zelda is, what, 16 by 11? Yep. Is that the case for Link's Awakening as well? No. Link's Awakening is more square. Uh, Zelda 1 has it almost like a widescreen ratio, but it's primarily because they have permanent 
big UI at the top. Gotcha. That okay. takes up like the top fifth of the screen or something like that. Right. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Cool. Well, I mean, that sounds like a really fun way to have gone about the playthrough. And as soon as I saw you doing it and, and kind of chronicle, chronicling it um, in Discord and, uh, you know, it, it seemed like the kind of thing that I I feel like would be a lot of fun for me to do. And I might actually choose to tackle my next playthrough that way. I think what Matt and I have kind of uh, where we've landed with this so far is that uh, even though we're maybe not going into this as blind as some people have like recommended that we do. Uh, I mean, we've had people telling us to like, you know, oh, well, like, don't, you know, don't use guides and don't do all this other stuff. Like, enjoy the exploration for what it is. And I think in some ways we are, but also I think that, uh, I don't know, I think that we need more. Max, can you still hear us? Yep. Sorry, we froze for a second. Um, I think where Matt and I landed is that we need a little bit more structure to enjoy that in and of itself in this game. It's moment to moment gameplay without structure is not quite fun enough for, for us to like enjoy just kind of bouncing around, stumbling into things just for the sake of it, you know? Um, yeah. And so I think where we're at right now is we're we're enjoying establishing a base of knowledge with this game that we will be able to rely on for later playthroughs where we don't need to you lean on things like guides and stuff quite as much. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like I spend every first portion of my weekly playthrough, I spend at least the first 20 to 30 minutes just wandering around. Not don't have a map up, don't have anything up. I just kind of wander around, try to kill some stuff, see if I find anything that I haven't discovered before. But once I get bored isn't the right word, but once I kind of want something to like go chase that I can put tangible um, tangible goals towards, I, I pull up the, you know, Phil's hand-drawn map and I, and I kind of look around as to where I'm at, where I need to go next, what is kind of between here and there, and then just kind of plan out a, you know, maybe I'll kind of meander over here. And, and most of the time I end up getting sidetracked and I don't go the exact route that I kind of have in my mind, but it at least gives me something to plan my play session around and like i think most of us are um at a point in our lives where we don't just have six hours or even three hours to just meander aimlessly and accomplish nothing in, in a video game and um you know or accomplish one thing like finding one dungeon in three hours or finding one yeah. you know shop like that's that's not a that's not something that we can feasibly do at this point in our lives as we approach <laughs> 30 in my case and as as some of y'all are over 30 like <laughs> there are other things going on in life so um uh you know if if i think if i were at a stage in my life where three hours of gameplay resulting in one dungeon or a couple shops or just you know getting some rupees like if I was at a stage in my life where that was okay, I might have a different take on it, but I'm just not. And I, you know, I have to approach this game in the context of where I'm at in my life. And this is the most effective way to do that while it being enjoyable and still trying to, as much as possible, stick to the original design of the game itself. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I think that that is 100% legit. Um, there's many things about Zelda one that obviously haven't aged well, like as a, as a game now in 2022, 
uh, it's not great. Like most of the lenses that like when you look, when you're enjoying it for most people, if they're enjoying it, it's because they're looking at it through a lens that gives them some perspective that makes it enjoyable for a reason other than just itself. Like for me, it's I'm looking at it as a Zelda historian, right? Um, which I can I could call myself at this point. Uh, but like that's that's why I'm doing the whole thing where I'm trying to play in an authentic way with the resources that players would have had back then. But even with that as a goal of mine, I didn't actually stick to that very well. Like I use save states. I'm going to beat it, but I'm going to beat it with save states because it's too hard. and I don't have the patience to boulder, uh, shoulder through it. Um, from kind of a, a game design perspective, Zelda 1's exploration is fairly clumsy uh, by the day's standards. Uh, there's just there's so many things, so many conventions that nobody had ever done before yet that they had to make up as they went along. Uh, and they just, you know, th- now we have decades more experience of how to make games that people uh, enjoy the act of exploration in. Um, the case in point, of course, being Breath of the Wild, which has very, very similar, I would say, kind of vision and uh, fundamental goals as Zelda 1. But obviously, the act of exploring in Breath of the Wild is a far more enjoyable one um, for reasons that I could get into if we wanted to spend some time on that. I mean, I would, I would love to hear, I don't know, give me, give me maybe like three bullets that, that you would say make breath of the wild moment to moment more fun than, than the legend of Zelda aside from the, just the modern trappings. And, and I wouldn't say more, I think more fun is kind of too broad. I would say more refined in delivering that vision, because I think you're right in the fact that the vision for Zelda one and the vision for breath of the wild are very similar. It is a wide open space with very little signposting in Zelda one's case, zero signposting that encourages you to just go explore and figure it out. And so what, what to Linda's point, three bullet points about what makes Breath of the Wild's execution of that vision more effective. Yeah. So a big one is uh, goals. Um, in Breath of the Wild, you are always, you always have a goal. And oftentimes it's one you're setting for yourself. But you can, you can look on the horizon. Um, or if you're high up, look down on the land around you, maybe from a Sheikah Tower. And you'll see things that catch your eye. You know, you'll see some blue glow or uh, orange glow, I guess is usually what it is, actually. And that orange glow might be a chest. It might be a shrine. Um, it might be any number of things. Uh, but you'll see something. And then now you have a goal, right? Like as a player, you're like, okay, I saw that thing. I want to get to that thing. Uh, and maybe you'll be distracted on the way there. But you always have this layer of, of kind of knowing in some fashion where you're going and why. Um, and Breath Zelda one doesn't have that, uh, that element to it. I mean, for one thing, you can only see one screen at a time, right? Uh, but it doesn't really have any other good mechanisms to, to give you goals. Like all the secrets hidden around 
they aren't things that you can. Well, I'm now in bullet point number two. Um, so that was bullet point number one. <laughs> uh, bullet point number two is Zelda one discovery. Like they have these feelings. They're trying to build a feeling of discovery where you've come across secret caves, pieces of heart, secret items um, that you just find in the world. And they do this pretty successfully just by having lots of cool stuff to find. But the act of searching for things and stumbling upon them requires some uh, just very thorough searching rather than something that you can do serendipitously as you explore. Yeah. And and Breath of the Wild in contrast, it has it has the visual language I was talking about. Like they have they very carefully come up with ways to give you subtle clues that like something is here to find. Um, you know, whether it's they teach you to look for circles of rocks with one stone missing, like that's a that's part of a visual language that tells you a Korok is there, or whether it's an orange glow, which is how they highlight important objectives. Um, like they always they always have a cue to give you uh, to attract your attention. When I, when I'm designing stuff, I call it a hook, right? Like if you have a secret to find, you know, it needs a hook and it needs some, uh, you know, some friction or some challenge to overcome. Uh, and then at the end, there needs to be something to find, right? So Zelda one doesn't really have the hook element. You just need to look everywhere. Uh, so that's bullet point number two. Uh, let's see, what, sh- what should I say for bullet point number three? I mean, the obvious things are just like, you know, quality of life and sandbox gameplay and combat and stuff is all way better, of course. But in terms of executing on exploration, uh, Breath of the Wild does far better at having a sense of place um, and... And uh, showing you that sense of place via things like landmarks and the characters around you. Um, and Zelda 1 has a pretty... It does have a sense of place as you look around, especially for its time. Like, there's there's distinct feeling for different portions of its world map. But, uh, you know, it's obviously just not nearly as strong as Breath of the Wilds. Sure. Yeah, and I think that honestly, and this is something that's even relevant to to this section of game. Um, when we talk about things that, like little trickety tricks that this game has that keep that are meant to be an obstacle, is to rely on puzzles that I think could only be called puzzles in the most generous possible sense of the word. Right. Um, one of the big ones that hit me this week was in order to get to Dungeon Five. You've got to go up that staircase in the mountains to get to it. And the Uh only way that you can actually make it all the way up the staircase is if you go all the way forward four times. Like you follow it all the way up. Like the screen repeats and you just have to go all the way up. Yeah. And you have to go all the way up without turning around four times. And then you get to the dungeon. And I'm just thinking like, like I only knew that because it was written in the guide. Yep. And and there is no way that I would have like discerned that, you know, w- without some kind of hint or or something. I mean, there's there's an old woman in a cave near the near bottom, bottom stairs, stairs that tells you to reach the top, the top just go, just go up, 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 and that's the hint. hint. But you got to find the old woman first. 
And I and I definitely did not. And even if I like even if I had found the old woman, I'd like to believe that maybe that hint would have been sufficient um for me to <laughs> for me to like get the solution but i i don't know i mean it's just such a it's the kind of thing that is like so early console game design right um it, it it's not a puzzle that would that i i think would ever be done in a in a game with like a modern sensibility and like to your point we also get the lost woods in this section of the game and that is something that has been repeated quite a lot throughout other Zelda games. Um, and I don't – it's hard for me to put my finger on exactly what the difference is and why I think one is like something that deserves to continue forward and the other is not. Um, I don't know. Like I, It I, has I, to do with the – I would say um, the, the kind of fantasy of it. Like when you're trying to climb to the top of a mountain, you don't get lost. You can see the top of the mountain. Like, it's just up there. You just go towards it. Maybe it's hard to get there, but, like, you don't get lost. Whereas woods, it feels appropriate to get lost, especially if they're, like, misty, creepy woods and there's, like, underbrush moving around. It's kind of like the Mirkwood fantasy there. If any of you have read the uh, Lord of the Rings. Oh, 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 have we read the Lord of the Rings? What's the Lord (laughs) of the Rings? I've never never heard of it. I meant to say, what's the one with the the, the weeping willow, um, and Bombadil? The oh, it's forest. no, yeah, that's that's yeah. Lord of the Rings. That's the old forest, yeah, yeah, the old forest, yeah. Um, where the outside Buckland <laughs> on the borders of Buckland, yeah, yeah. outside Buckland. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I feel like it's more it's more coherent as a where the uh, the mechanic matches the location matches the story being told. In the Lost Woods, yeah. I guess I guess that makes sense. Giving you hints. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I think to the the point that we've really made since really episode one of this season is just the utter lack of accessible signposting to help you make those kinds of decisions. Like, if I didn't have phil's hand-drawn guide i would be playing this game for hours and hours and hours just trying to find the next thing that i needed to do and that would be such a frustrating experience for me but in fairness there are several so especially when we're talking about overworld exploration right uh you know the main things that you're going to be uncovering are like you're burning trees and you find a shop or you find a heart container or something or rupees you know um and obviously those are frustrating just because the only way to discover those is to try burning every tree or try bombing every wall, right? And nobody thinks that's fun. But one thing that this game does do that is very much a precursor to all all Zelda games, like for the entire rest of the series, is it does in the overworld – like there are some heart containers that you can see mm-hmm. and just can't get to yet. Mm-hmm. And so you like an item is required – it's it's kind of that Metroid thing, right? Where like you have to get the thing to get the thing that you can see, you know? Yeah, um, that's the hook. Say what? That's the hook I was talking about earlier. Yeah. And and like and so and so that is very firmly established 
um, even this early on. And I think, you know, Max, you were talking a minute ago about people get enjoyment out of this game through specific lenses, right? And mm-hmm. and yours is obviously the the history of the development philosophy around this entire series and what what kind of gave way to it coming into being and the, the thoughts and attitudes behind it. Um, obviously, that's your lens. And so you love yep. analyzing it from that perspective. Um, for me, it is really... While going through this game, taking enjoyment out of uh, out of the sense of familiarity that that is there, even amongst all this other frustrating stuff. Like, I think in our first episode this season, Matt and I both said that, like, even though this game kind of is what it is, it's a game of its time. It still feels very much like Zelda to us. And for me, my lens has been kind of mentally cataloging the ways in which it manages to do that kind of from its inception, you know? Yeah, I can, I feel that, um, there's a lot of things that feel quintessentially Zelda in here. And there's a lot of things that are like, wow, this is a weird, uh, you know, thing that didn't get carried forward. Um, to a lesser extent link to the past feels the same way to me. Like I play it and I'm like, Oh, there's, there's like, it's clear that they didn't quite know where they were going for yet. There's a lot of experimentation and stuff that gets tried and abandoned in later games. Um, this has that too. So talking more specifically about this section of the game without talking about the dungeons, cause we'll get to that in a minute, but I did want to ask you, We've all kind of mentioned, Matt and I mentioned at the top about how there's a big spike in difficulty in this section of the game. And you've already mentioned how you feel the same way and it's even caused you to bounce off of completing this game several times in the past. Um, And I'm kind of wondering, like, is it not – I I, I guess I'm kind of surprised that even for as old as this game is and for as prototypical as it is, I'm surprised that there's not a bit more of a gradual ramp – in difficulty it, it really feels like we got to the edge of like easy town and then just stepped off into the abyss <laughs> um honestly for its time i think it has a very uh conservative difficulty curve like if you play like i don't know ghosts and goblins or you know almost anything else from that time period they just they just throw you right in the hard shit right away um so the fact that you can get through half the dungeons of this game before it becomes punishing is it was probably like this revelatory thing at the time. I mean, Super Mario Brothers did it as well. They had a good curve for that game. But uh, it was pretty rare. Yeah, definitely. It, it's just interesting because I stack this up against um, a link to the past a little bit, but definitely Link's Awakening, where I, I feel like Link's Awakening is a game that it has a very measurable... Uh, climb in difficulty from one dungeon to another and then to another right um you know i think dungeon four is measurably more difficult than dungeon three which was measurably more difficult than dungeon two and so on and so forth yeah so um so yeah i mean i i guess i just again this is the thing we always talk about with older zelda games that's me putting my own expectations on it which isn't fair but that's like our perspective. That's what we have to work with here, you know? So, well, I guess one last question that I'll ask you before we kind of get into talking about dungeons and stuff. Is there anything on this playthrough so far that is surprising you? Um, 
I was surprised when I found the power bracelet, which is probably not the kind of answer you're looking for, but uh, the game has surprised me with giving me interesting rewards when I'm not expecting it a couple times, um, which is something that Breath this game does better than Breath of the Wild to a certain extent. Um because this game gives you permanent new options and abilities that you can find out in the world, which you don't really get in Breath of the Wild. And right. that's a very compelling reward for exploration. It's like, it's the old, like, you found the ice rod in a random cave and linked to the past. It was just there, and you found it because you got curious and looked. Uh, and this game has that for several items scattered around. Um, and I've, uh, I've been so surprised by how much I've been enjoying the combat. I remember the combat being just clunky in previous times I've played, and this time I'm enjoying it a lot for whatever reason. Not sure what changed in the intervening years, but uh, like it's obviously primitive and unforgiving once you're past a certain point. But just the actual mechanics of it still work pretty well. I am enjoying the combat in this game more than I enjoy the combat in Link's Awakening. Or sorry, a link to the past. Uh, I was gonna say, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, nope. no, I, I actually fully agree with with that. Uh, the I think a link to the past had a uh, more difficult overworld enemy set that punished your lack of um, diagonal ability than this game does. Yeah, well, I mean, like, so I, I guess to to further expand on that point, Link to the Past has a lot of the similar baked in, like, sort of frustrating. Uh, combat deficiencies i guess like the the combat in a link to the past i don't think is fundamentally too different than this except that you have your spin attack right um and i think that uh with that link to the past has also got much more complicated enemy encounters i guess like the 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 fights that you get in i i guess are they just there's a little bit more there and i think the added complexity on top of the um the fact that it's not all that different from this is is what frustrates me more about that. I, I think this game is so like you're right, it is primitive, but like it just it is what it is. You know, it's uh um it's not too much for for what you have to work with. Maybe it's an expectation uh, thing. Like we both approached this game knowing that the combat would be the way that it is, knowing that there would be very little in terms of um, forgiveness or um, uh, variability, maybe. I'm not sure, but like we, we knew what we were getting into as far as combat is concerned from what this game has to offer because it is from this generation of games. So maybe it's an expectation thing. Uh, more than a enjoyability i'm not sure but i think it could they kind of go hand in hand I, expectations matter a lot for sure like something something that game designers often don't do a great job of but is really important is um setting player expectation before they play a game so that it is properly aligned with like what the game wants their headspace to be in uh it is very bad uh, when a game advertises itself in such a way that it creates an incorrect picture of itself in its players' minds before they play, because that creates disappointment. Um, and so, yeah, expectation is a big deal. I would agree with that, and I think 
maybe one of the reasons that Matt and I are enjoying this so much more than we expected to be is because we were expecting it to be just like awful, terrible. (laughs) (laughs) So our expectations were about as low as they could be. And then it easily surpassed that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, That's Uh, it. I remember you, you two felt like a couple bosses in a link to the past were kind of bullet helly, like Mafula. There's just like tons of elements running around in this 2D space. You have to kind of keep track of all of them and dodge all these things. Uh, I feel like Zelda 1 actually has a lot of that throughout all of a lot of its combat encounters. Well, we have definitely Yeah, we definitely got there a little bit this week, didn't we? Yeah, we did. <laughs> but even uh, even Manhandla had had a little, had bit, of a little yeah. bit of that, yeah. Um and I, I think you are right, Max. There is a little bit of that here as well. I think that uh, something about I, f- I feel like I've just got a little bit more room to work with. Like I feel like even though it does get into sort of bullet hell, uh, sometimes I always, or at least so far, I guess there's always room for me to be disappointed here. But like so <laughs> far, yeah, so far I've felt like I have got the necessary space and dexterity to like be evasive in those in those areas yeah especially after picking up the magic shield i feel like i've had ample opportunity to either put myself in a position to absorb some of the bullets um versus just taking damage as a as a course of like either i take damage from this trap or i take damage from the boss and the trap does less so i'll take the trap like i don't feel like i've been put in that position nearly as much as i was in specifically the mothula fight where it was just guillotine traps everywhere moving uh treadmills plus mothulas fireballs and i was just like there's nothing you can do (laughs) right but like in so far i Again, so far, um, I have not felt that trapped into the lesser of two evils as far as taking damage is concerned so far. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I can say so far one more time in that sentence. Yeah, I think. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you got another one in there, Matt. Yeah, no, I think that that's true and accurate. Um, I, I don't know, Matt, before we kind of get into dungeons and start, start talking about the the increased complexity that is that is there. Um where are you give me a gut check on generally your playthrough at the moment yeah i actually like really enjoyed uh exploring around in this section especially after dungeon uh for three so we we finished dungeon three last time got the raft so that gave me just an extra avenue to explore some new areas which i i enjoyed i went and i got the blue ring which is going to be one of my bloopy trails so spoiler alert but um like i did some more intentional exploration of the western the southwestern portion of the map um i actually tried without using phil's guide to get to the cemetery to get the magic sword I was not able to do it. Um, so that's on my checklist for next time. But like it's, it's it was it was a section of game for me that I tried to push the boundaries of my own exploration abilities without <coughs> relying on uh, without relying on. Uh, Phil's guide and then once I kind of reached that limit I said okay I I need to sit down and actually like do the dungeon and do the next couple of things and and then focused on those so I had a good time with this Um, I want to be honest and also just cross my fingers that my boss doesn't listen to this I played this during the work day because I had like an hour and a half block where I didn't have any meetings and I hadn't played it yet so I was like I'm just gonna sit down and do it so uh, it took me longer 
a lot longer this time to play this section of game than previous sections. So I actually bled that over into playing while I was on a meeting because I hadn't finished Dungeon 5 yet. So um, it was definitely a more intense section of game than we've previously had. Uh, and I think that it's it, it was good, though, in a lot of ways. We're going to get into the not so good parts later, but um, well, I, I did we, I did enjoy we and we get all the way over to the east end of the map here too, like over to the graveyard and stuff. Right. Or the that's West. The West. That's the West. That's Sorry. the West. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but uh, anyway, the, the point stands like we're getting into new areas here. And uh, I think that that kind of helped to uh, give some variation to what we're doing in the overworld. Because I, I, my suspicion is that it's going to get more and more difficult to talk about the differences in the overworld experience the further that we go, right? Um, because at some point, it's just – there's just not that much variation, yeah. right? We do not have like biomes and stuff the, no. way, that, the yeah. way that we're used to with like Link's Awakening and other – you know. Um, so yeah, I think that that's just at, – at some point – all the corners of the overworld map are filled in and it's yeah. just it's just finding these dungeons. But. I think so far the only sections of the map that I haven't reached are the very top the north the very northwest corner. I haven't reached the cemetery. And I think like other than that I've hit pretty much every section of the map. Like maybe the very top northeast section where I think there's a there's a small dungeon up there or a small little cave. I don't know that I got there. Um but yeah, like I've I've hit most of the sections of the map so far, except for those very westernmost portions. Um, so I think we're kind of coming to the end of overworld, new overworld exploration. So I want to uh, – there's something I want to circle back around to at the end of this episode. I've got an interesting prompt that I want us to canvas a little bit. And Max and Matt, I want you both to try as hard as you can after we're done with the Sacred Realms rundown to not let me forget – to, to pose this question okay yes cool okay uh, on a similar note i actually have like a bunch of historical facts about the making of this game that i want uh to talk about or at least run rail out um so if we get to the end and i haven't brought them up i also have something to bring up <laughs> well the good news is that z targeting bloopy trails and all that other stuff takes about like exactly five minutes these days so like <laughs> 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 so I think we should be fine. But let's go ahead and get into part three, which is the dungeon map, uh, where we analyze this week's dungeons from mechanics to music and more. Um, of course, the dungeons that we're covering this week are dungeon four, which is colloquially, 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 yes, known as uh, snake and dungeon five, which is lizard. And I just want to ask real quick, where do those names come from? I've seen them everywhere, Max, but I there is nothing that I'm seeing in the game other than the map layout of the dungeon um, that kind of points to to, to uh, those names. They they probably come from the official tips and tactics guide. Okay. Uh, in, in English and in Japan, they had various official guides as well. So probably that's probably where it comes from. Okay, cool. Good to know. Well, let's go ahead and talk about Dungeon 4. Um, which is, uh, like we said, snake. And of course we've got a few new enemies in dungeon four, also a few new, um, I guess, environmental difficulties that we have to deal with. Dark rooms are a big deal in this dungeon. The candle is required to illuminate a lot of rooms, which, um, which I thought was, um, you know, obviously when we go forward into Link's Awakening, we've got magic powder, which, um, allows us to light 
candles in rooms and, and we, we've got a similar dark room thing there the um in this game the candle will uh perpetually illuminate a room until you leave it and come back in so that's kind of a big difference there um but I, I think that that's a notable difference in this dungeon and something we haven't encountered before um it's one of those things where i think the fact that uh We've got this weird mechanic where the the bad candle can only be used once per screen. Uh, yes, is that. yeah. I mean, yeah. It's uh, it's not <laughs> to me. It's not the most fun added difficulty modifier onto that mechanic. But I like, say, I don't hate it in four. I hate it more in five. But yes, continue. Okay. Cool. Yep. So so we do have dark rooms here. We have a few new enemies. We've got like likes. Um, we've got the vire. Um, a few different things here, but I guess Matt, I'm gonna let you go first. Give me your give me your quick thoughts on Dungeon Four and and whether you enjoyed it or not. Yeah, no, I, I thought Dungeon Four was actually pretty fun. Um, it had a a, a noticeable uptick in difficulty from you know like likes being able to eat your shield and also tanking a lot of damage from your white sword um then getting the ladder actually was really cool so the ladder becomes just such an important part of traversing the rest of the dungeon and that's the first time we've really seen a dungeon item be used in the dungeon so that was really cool actually i liked that a lot um and it gives you a really good opportunity to set the ladder down get to a safe space where enemies can't hit you unless they're like a flying bat enemy and just kind of swipe at some people so that was really good um dark rooms were kind of fun um and this was one of the one of the room or one of the dungeons where you it's hard to accidentally wander into the boss um i think that uh in all the previous dungeons i've accidentally wandered into the boss well before i completed the dungeon itself this is one of the times that i did not do that and uh that was really good for me as i think that dungeons should have a a very set um, experience from beginning to end with the boss being at the end. Um, haven't really seen that in the first three, but the fourth kind of performed to that, to my, to my expectation, which I know is not necessarily the game mm-hmm. designers yeah. uh, intention, but that my experience and, and hope, but um, no, I, I really liked this dungeon. I thought this one was a lot of fun. One thing that I thought was fun about this dungeon, you know, we talked in the first dungeon or two about the lack of mini bosses before you get to the actual boss, right? Yeah. And that's something that we're starting to see a lot more of as we progress through the game. Um, the last dungeon had a bit of a mini boss situation. Um, we're getting into a situation now in dungeon four, and then it happens again in dungeon five, where you do have a mini boss and it's, it's a previous it's, boss. It's also just a previous boss. <laughs> I know. Like, that was kind of you know, funny. Like we fight Manhandla again in yeah. this dungeon before we go on and fight Gleok. Yeah, that was pretty crazy to me. I like wandered into that room and I saw Manhandla again. And I, I was not looking at Phil's guide and I saw Manhandla. And I was like, seriously, this bitch again? <laughs> and this time I blew him up with one bomb. Nice. Ah, it was awesome. I felt so accomplished. You learned. He can be taught. <laughs> it was really it was a really fun experience. Did you fight with your sword the first time? I did. So the first time I blew up two of his heads with one bomb and had to swipe away the other two because he moved too fast. I couldn't get him with a bomb again. So no, this time I got all four heads with one bomb and I was just like snaps, like jazz snaps all the way around. It was great. <laughs> What about you, Max? I mean, where where you – so I think Dungeon 4 is not the one that has previously caused consternation for you, right? Right. I have beaten Dungeon 4 before in the past, uh, and I, I think it's uh, – Matt actually already said my biggest insight that I was going to mention, which is that, like, this is the first dungeon you can get uh, a item that immediately 
like makes the whole dungeon feel different to you. There's like a bunch of rooms in this dungeon where you can use the ladder to traverse them just so much better um, than you could before. Uh, so like the second you get that, like it just feels you suddenly get this sense of freedom. Like when before you had to like go through these little labyrinthine walkways and stuff. Now you can just go wherever you want. Yep. Um, so that's really cool. Uh, and kind of foreshadows the direction the whole series goes, you know, years later with all of its games. Um, and it's, it's kind of the last dungeon where you really get where all the enemies are just kind of these trash mobs, right? Like nothing is, nothing is particularly hard. Even the mini boss, you can one shot if you're skilled like Matt. Oh, thank you. Um, I think, I mean, honestly, maybe the hardest enemy in this dungeon is like the like likes. And for them, it's just because they have a boatload of health. Yeah. Um, and they are in a room with those like little anti fairies that turn off your ability to use your sword. Yep, the bubbles. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I don't have a lot of in, uh, interesting comments besides that. I think the the thing that I was thinking to myself as I was playing through this dungeon is because it definitely is a eureka moment when you start having to use the ladder to traverse it. Right, like that is one of those moments. Talking again about my lens of enjoyment for this game. You know, seeing the genesis of that sort of mechanic, um, finding something in the dungeon and having to use it to beat the dungeon. It had me thinking about ways that I wish that had been done in the dungeons that we've already done in this game. Like Mm -hmm. it would have been so fun if you could not get to the boss in dungeon three without the raft. Like you get to a final room and it's got a raft pier and you can't like sail over to the boss unless you have the raft, you know, even and that's not even like an exploration it that's not even like a, a moving through the dungeon thing that's just like how to get to the boss but even that would have been a fun way to kind of incentivize finding the raft in that dungeon while you're in there you know yeah and then how do you incorporate the raft into the boss fight <laughs> uh well <laughs> uh i mean there there's something to be said for optional items um, which this game does a lot of like there's a, especially in the first like four dungeons i feel like almost all the items are optional to beat the dungeon um maybe literally all of them except for the flute yeah and that's the that's, that's five. five right uh so the the thing that like, you accomplish when your uh, items are optional is that players feel a sense of accomplishment when they find them because they know that they could have missed it like there's this kind of this element of like I went off the beaten path. I outsmarted the like I am an adventurer. I'm not just following the path the game laid out for me, um, which is a nice illusion yeah. uh, <laughs> for players. Well, and I think that like one so something that's been very big to me, and you l- let me know if you feel the same way or not, Max. But like I think I said this last week. One thing that I think this game is really good about is selling the fantasy of like of this this whole world as one of antiquity that's got like you know that's got like labyrinths with stuff that's there to find if you want to find it but a lot of times you don't have to like i think it's very indiana jones in that way and correct me if i'm wrong but wasn't that one of the original like inspirations for this um it very well could be but uh, i haven't seen i haven't come across that 
Maybe I'm just putting that on it myself, or maybe somebody else has made that observation at some other point. But I think it's like, I don't know. I think going back to the Breath of the Wild comparison, I think there's a lot of spots in Breath of the Wild that have aesthetic antiquity to them, right? Like, you know, Uh ruins are dime a dozen in Breath of the Wild, right? But I would say that the... um, the impact of exploring those ruins is very rarely, uh, you know, monumental. Um, and in this, in this game, it definitely is. And I think that the occasional finding of a non necessary item that you could completely miss just sort of helps sell that fantasy a little bit to me. Absolutely. So I think, I think that continues to be sort of a point in the, in the favor of like, even though this game is very primitive in its aesthetic and its mechanics and whatnot, uh, the fantasy that they're trying to sell me on, I feel like is successful. Like I do feel it. It's funny because we talk about this game being primitive, which, which it is like I used that word earlier, but like it also has maybe the biggest cast of enemies of the series. There's a ton of different monsters in this game with different behaviors. And it has a big selection of items that feel pretty meaningful about to in terms of like the impact they can have as you move around the world even the optional items they feel important like they make a big difference when you get them whether it's the you know upgraded boomerang or the power bracelet or the um i was gonna say the whistle but i don't know if that's actually optional well actually the sword is optional you can play almost the entire game without the sword yeah well imagine like fighting the poles voice without the bow for instance man that would be a nightmare Oh, man, I, I was totally doing that because I didn't realize the bow was how I could kill them. Uh, the bow is the only way to do it, Max. Well, not, I mean, <laughs> I I mean not the only, like but I mean, if you're, if you're going for efficiency. <laughs> but yeah, it's very I mean, interesting that the bow's ammo is your rupees just directly. God, OK, do you. So we were talking about that last week. Do you have maybe any insight at all into why it was done that way and not because because your bombs have ammo in this game, you know? Yeah, I don't think it's a technical restraint. I think it is a there. They were like, oh, shit, rupees lose value after a certain point because there's nothing left to spend them on. And this was their solution to that. Um, in the same way that like the rupee armor and Twilight Princess is a much less effective way <laughs> to achieve the same thing. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. I was just wondering if if you had like come across anything in your cataloging of like interviews or whatnot that might have illuminated the reason. But either way, I, I think you're right. I think that's probably where that does come from. But um, but anyway, yeah, so Dungeon 4, I think I think we're all going to have just a little bit more to say about Dungeon 5. But um, I do think that Dungeon 4 is kind of feels like the end of the. I don't know. It, it it feels like the end of the um of the non I I want to say non-complex dungeon in this game. Uh and that's not to say it doesn't have its own complexities, but this dungeon feels very much of a pair with like dungeons one, two, and three. And dungeon five starts to feel pretty distinct as soon as you kind of get into it. Um at least it did to me. So yeah, I would agree with that. Dungeon 5 is, up until that point, they all run together in my memory. I had to pull up a map to remind myself which one even was level 4 for yeah. this talk. 
uh, interesting points of, uh, I don't know, interesting points of curiosity in this dungeon. There is a hidden treasure room that you can only get to by uh, bombing walls. And uh, if you're looking at this dungeon on a grid, that uh, that space is space B2. Um, there's a treasure room that's got some rupees in it uh, if you bomb the wall it's and the, get to the it that eye way. Of the snake. Say what? The eye of the snake. Yeah, 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 yeah that is uh yep yep if you're looking at it on the map that would be where the eye of the snake would be um so yeah get it get, get you a few easy rupees in there um the only other thing to really talk about in here is the boss gleok which i felt like was um i don't know i mean not 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 really too much to say about this one we do have an interesting mechanic where after you kill gleok's first head it detaches and just follows you around and is invulnerable to damage for the uh, rest of the boss yeah fight. that was kind of annoying <laughs> um, yeah you can kind of just power through it because like all the bosses in this game it's actually pretty weak like health wise yeah if you're keeping up with your sword upgrades and stuff of course so what matt what 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 did you have in terms of upgrades going into this dungeon? Uh, going into this dungeon four, I only had the white sword, the white sword. I didn't have the magic shield and I didn't have the blue ring yet. Oh, so you didn't stand to lose anything to these like likes. Oh, wait, no, 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 no. You're right. I did buy the magic shield right before I went in. That's okay. right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I didn't have the blue ring yet, though. I did have the the magic shield because gotcha. when because we actually learned this and the last episode we recorded was that the shield you can buy from all the vendors is the magic shield not just another regular shield right which is it what i thought like it was normal shield doesn't it it looks I exactly the, same, the same i had no idea it was an upgrade well because we're all just so used to especially you and me max i mean we're link's awakening people like that was that was our intro right and you can absolutely lose your regular ass shield in Link's Awakening, and then every shop that you stumble into offers that same shield because you can lose it. And so I think you and I probably both just assumed that that was the case here as well. Um, yep. Whereas I, I'm used to shields being dungeon items. Like every Zelda game, including Link's Awakening, that I have ever played have an upgraded shield as one of the like very late in the game dungeon items yeah usually the mirror shield yeah exactly so i was not expecting that to be an immediately purchasable item yeah yep i agree so but we, we canvassed that a little bit last week but i'm glad to know that you felt the same way max because that means that <laughs> we're not crazy <laughs> we're, we're not just plebes yeah uh the other thing i want to say is that obviously we meet the vire for the first time in this dungeon there's a ton of them and not a lot of buyers, not a one of them drops any items for you. And I think that's just rude. It's very frustrating. Wait, really? They don't drop items? No, I thought I was just unlucky. Nope. They have a zero item economy. Yeah. No rupees, no hearts, no anything. Those jerks. Yeah, they really are just the worst. Highly inconsiderate. All right. Well, let's go ahead and move on to probably the main event, which is going to be Dungeon <laughs> yeah, Dungeon. Five, uh, also known as Lizard, which uh, is a dungeon um, <laughs> with such a marked increase in difficulty that it led to Matt rage texting me uh, around lunchtime today saying this dungeon <laughs> <laughs> that that it, that that were those were your words. Exactly, Matt. Um, <laughs> yes. And it's only going to get harder from here. I'd, I'd be willing to bet. So 
Um, so, Max, I'm going to let you go first on this one. Yeah, okay. So this is the dungeon where I have I have bounced off the game multiple oh, times. Hold on, hold on, hold, hold on, on, Max. Was that Bunny Friend? Bunny Friend. Oh yeah, oh, Bunny Friend's running around. Oh, he's he's very active tonight. <laughs> we have we have bunnies who like live in our backyard, and every now and again they like come out, and we just like we're just like, hey, hey, Bunny Friend, he's over there. Hey, dude. He's signi- <laughs> he's significantly less threatening than the Poles voice in this dungeon. <laughs> very less threatening, dude or dudette. Anyway, I'm sorry, Max. I interrupted His you. His weakness is still arrows. That is absolutely <laughs> true. His weakness is still arrows. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so I've, I've bounced off this dungeon, and the reason is because of those like two or three rooms in a row with the like big pile of blue dark nuts. Yeah, screw those, those guys. guys. Oh so, my god, they are so hard and so unforgiving and there's so many of them and this is the first time you run into them and there's like oh here's a scariest enemy you've seen so far by the way there's seven of them good luck fool Um, and they and they go in such random patterns and i got into multiple times where i would get in like i can't describe it any other way than a gangbang of blue uh blue dark nuts that would just hit me around where i literally couldn't move and would almost die and then i'd have to just rewind it because i'd lost all of my nine hearts yeah in like three seconds yeah and like oh sorry go ahead max oh i i didn't mean to cut you off matt no you're good i was done okay this this is the first point where i started using save states up until this point i wasn't saved using save states almost at all um, other than a couple points when I was bombing a bunch of stuff and I was like, this, I don't want to waste all my bombs. I give up on finding secrets. Um, but this fight, I, especially because there's multiple rooms in a row, um, I, I was save stating and then, you know, reloading unless I still had a certain number of hearts afterwards. Uh, and it's interesting because that is optional, right? Like, you can beat this dungeon without fighting those rooms of dark nuts. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Do you have to? Uh, so no, you actually have to fight both rooms of dark nuts in order to get to the flute because you cannot move the block until you've cleared all the enemies in oh, the room. Right. I forgot yeah. the. I keep forgetting the flute is required because it's such a weird item to be required for a boss fight. Yep. Um, but I guess that's the only way to kill that boss, isn't it? It is because otherwise it has the impenetrable uh, barrier around the eyeball. Um, yeah, I, so I remember when I got through and I got the flute, I'm like, cool, it was a, it was an optional item behind all that. That's kind of interesting that it's like this hard challenge, but you get a cool item. Um, but yeah, it wasn't actually optional at all. Uh, the rest of the dungeon is actually pretty straightforward. Like, oh, I guess there's the, the dongos, um, which are a pain in the butt if you're low on bombs. Yeah. Um, and this is a really interesting thing that happens. So I mentioned in Dungeon 2 when the, 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 when the single Dodongo is the boss. I mentioned is like, okay, cool. I can clearly see the beginnings of what became the Dodongos in Link's Awakening and how they work there, right? <laughs> yeah. But, but the fact that there was only one of them was just kind As of – As a boss. Right. Was kind of like, all right, well, all right, cool. All <laughs> sweet. I, I guess those, those get more difficult – you know, a few years down the road from this. But uh, having to fight three of them in the same room when your bombs are capped at eight coming into this dungeon. So you have to have minimum six. Yeah. 
is definitely um, that's definitely a challenge. And obviously, one of the things that this dungeon does do is it gives you a vendor uh, with which you can upgrade your bomb bag and you can carry 12 bombs, which is great. It's 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 a nice thing that happens where the solution to to, like the thing that you can do to make this easier is contained within the dungeon. That's nice. I appreciate that. Except. (laughs) Oh, really? Thank you, Max. Except for if you get all the way over there, you have you have to at least I think you have to fight through all the blue dark nuts to get to a place where you can bomb into the area that has the. Okay, I'm looking at the map now. I did find this, but I thought he was just going to refill my bombs. So I didn't buy it. Ah, so I I ran out of bombs in this dungeon. And so this was this was my this is the only time that I have let myself get a game over because I got stuck in a room where you have to. So there's the the bottom room. I think it's grid seven B and seven A. It's a it's like a one way door that you can bomb your way out of. But I used most of my bombs to kill the room full of eight blue dark nuts. I had no bombs and I traveled back and forth down the stairs up and around and killed all of the dark nuts four different times, rewinding a whole lot, trying to get one bomb drop so that I could bomb my way out of this area never got a single bomb so I had to game over to get back to the beginning of the dungeon leave the dungeon run around refill my hearts refill my bombs and re-enter the dungeon and by that point I was so frustrated I didn't go and get the bomb bag well now you have to go back and get it now I have to go back and get it (laughs) and I'm just like it was oh my gosh this was what I was expecting from the entirety of uh, Zelda 1, and I finally got it of the frustratingly obtuse, we're going to use our word, <laughs> obtuse <laughs> mechanics. It's <laughs> a good word. Yeah. Well, we, Lord knows we use it enough. Um, <coughs> one quick observation. Have you noticed that the enemies with complicated mechanics by the standards of this game, appear in dungeons, and all the enemies in the overworld are simple? Yes. I like so, Some of them have a lot of health and damage, but they're always simple. Like, you can just hit them from any angle. All you need to do is not get hit by their straightforward attack. Uh, and that's the overworld. Yeah. And you un- know, in the underworld, you find, like, Dark Nuts and Pull's Voice. And- yep. And, and Gibdos, honestly. Like, Gibdos are not necessarily hard, but even when you have the blue ring, they take a full heart Bo- off of you. Boomerang, uh, boomerang makes those quite a lot easier. For sure. No, it does. But like if you and it took me a, a little bit to actually get to the point where I was using the boomerang on them, because as we stated last episode, we never really felt like there was a need to use the boomerang. But boomerang is very helpful on these Gibdos because there are a lot of rooms where you have four to six that are running around. Yeah. And um, while I don't think Gibdos are necessarily hard, they do a lot of damage. And um, this is what I was talking about when I thought that having a one use candle was kind of not great because <clears throat> it, I, I think 
at least in other games, Gibdos take more damage from fire attacks than anything else. So I, I was I don't believe it. Works I don't that think way that game. it works that way after I did it a couple times. Um, but like I went into every fight with a Gibdo st- and started off with a fire attack and then I just couldn't use it anymore. So that was kind of frustrating. But as I kept progressing through and having to literally redo most of the dungeon, uh, I was like, I don't think this is doing more damage than just my sword. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the, the dark nuts are definitely a huge pain in the ass. Um, obviously, the fact that you can only attack them from, you know, you, you can't attack them from the front. Um, and with the red dark nuts, that's not such a big deal because they move slower and they change direction less often. But these guys, I, f- I feel like as soon as I got in a position to hit one, it immediately would turn around and poke me, you yeah. know? Well, and and I noticed this even as I was because while I was doing my whole trying to get bombs from these guys, I was rewinding at like basically every time I got hit because I didn't have any health potion. I was very low on hearts. I was just trying to get some bombs so I could progress. So I was rewinding a lot. And I was noticing that even when you rewind, they will follow a different path. So they don't have like a preset path they follow. It's completely random. And they will change direction on a dime and they will gang up on you and they will corner you like it's they are they're rough they're rough enemies have you two learned how to take advantage of the ability to swing your sword in one direction and then change in another direction on accident i did that a couple times but i haven't figured out how to do it consistently enough for it to be useful yeah it's like a like people who are really good at this game like speedrunners and the like they're like they're masters of just using that trick to just murder dark nuts and be fine the whole time but i have i can't really pull it off yet very well yeah i think it only works on the joystick because you can change direction so quickly as compared to like the traditional nes control where it's a uh, up and down uh, i'm not sure i haven't tried it with the i guess it's still technically the d-pad uh on the 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 d D buttons the d buttons yeah i haven't i haven't done the d buttons enough on the switch to to try it out but on the on the joystick i've done it on accident quite a few times i'm super glad that i have a third party controller um with an actual (laughs) d-pad because those buttons (laughs) suck they do suck yeah they're the worst um so putting the dark nuts to one side we do have a a few interesting things of note in this dungeon one is that we have our first uh stairway that takes us from one point in the dungeon to another Mm -hmm. um that is a a a series first in this dungeon um and definitely kind of uh i don't know it, it definitely especially before you get the map makes uh wayfinding pretty difficult you know um, because you have no yeah. point of reference for like where you where you were, ended up, yeah, where you were versus where you are. Right, you can like you can see. Okay, my dot is blinking in the top portion now, but I don't remember where I was before. Um, yeah. The uh, other thing that I kind of want to mention about this one is uh, so the item that we get in this dungeon, the whistle. We've we've talked about it once or twice already. Um, and obviously it's useful for beating the boss in this dungeon. I don't know what else it's good for after that, but, um, I'm curious, Matt, were you playing this, uh, were you playing this section of the game with your volume up? Yes, I was. Cool. Did you recognize anything familiar about the sound this whistle makes? Yeah, it's the theme music. Not from this game. It's, it's the, it is 
Like, I mean, I recognized it. I thought it was the theme music. Hold on. Listen to it again real quick. And then I'll explain to you why I thought this was just the damn coolest thing when I fired it up the first time. Also, the whistle uh, can heal you from the effects of bubbles. Oh, well, that's cool. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, I didn't know that. There you go. Neat. Okay, listen to this, Matt. Yeah. Theme music, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was the wildest freaking thing because I've spent my entire life thinking to myself, dang, I love that Ocarina of Time theme music. And I think it was so cool that they just made up a new piece of music and used that. <laughs> and it's like completely unique to that game. And they didn't use the overworld theme. And what, Psych! And like, and you know, that's still true. They didn't use the overworld theme. But I just thought it was so freaking funny. Like I fired that up and I was just like, I had to go Google it. I was like, is this like an addition to like newer versions of this game. And it's not. It's been this way the whole time. Yep. So uh, apparently uh, Miyamoto made Koji Kondo redo the sound effects, that little tune from the whistle, like many, many times because he was very particular about it having to have that like particular wistful sound that it has. Um, paid off, you know, 10 years later for Ocarina of Time. That's for sure. Oh, you say Ocarina. He does. Oh yeah, I forgot that. I it's pro- I'm probably it's probably Ocarina, isn't it? I don't it is. Know. It, that's going in our phonetics sub channel on uh, <laughs> on, Discord. <laughs> on the Discord right now. Cody I'm putting it there right now. The hell out of me. <laughs> I'm uh, putting it there right now, like he does us for everything we say. <laughs> Literally everything. Yes. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was a really fun little uh, little Easter egg there. I, I guess you can't really call it an Easter egg because it predates the thing that we associate it with for the most part. But like, so that, that I thought was really fun. Um, of course we already talked about the fact that you need the whistle to defeat, uh, the boss, which is dig dogger. Um, one thing I wanted to say about dig dogger, Matt, is that we had mentioned before how the Moldorm in this game is very dissimilar from like the Moldorm boss that you fight a million times in lots of Zelda games, right? Uh, Dig Dogger, I think, actually is super similar to the Moldorm boss that you fight in, like, Link's Awakening, Link to the I Past, think and all it, Yes, I think it is. I think Dig Dogger is more the precursor to Moldorm than the actual Moldorms that it we It even fight. looks kind of hamburgery. It, it does. It does look pretty <laughs> hamburgery. It does not look like what you would imagine from that name. Yeah, it, no. I mean, so I'll be honest. When I got the um, when I got the hint from the old man in this dungeon that says Dig Dogger doesn't like certain tunes, I thought he meant the Poles voice. So the next room I went into that has Poles voice in it, I played the whistle a couple times and it didn't do anything. And I was like, well, <laughs> I'm just going to shoot these guys with arrows again. So you stumbled into a weird bit of uh zelda trivia there matt especially when we're talking about the difference between the japanese version of this game and the english version uh max would you like to enlighten matt uh i actually don't think i know where you're going with this oh really unless this is another thing that i'm completely making up off the top of my head i believe that the famicom the japanese version of the nes had a microphone built into the controller am i wrong on that max I, I think you're wrong about that one. Ah, uh, no, hold on, hold on. Where am I getting this from? I know that there has been a version of Zelda where you had to make a noise into. That was the CDI. That was uh, th- that was um, Phantom Hourglass. Uh, hold on, on the hold DS. 
Now Lyndon's Googling it. And while he's doing that, I'm going to go get us another <laughs> round of beers. Okay, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a random factoid, though. Oh, dude. Uh, well, once Matt is back. Yeah. Uh, one second. So I don't want you to be right, but I think you are based on the squeal noise that I heard while I was getting more beer. <laughs> okay. This is straight from the Zelda wiki. Uh, entry under Pole's voice, sub-entry The Legend of Zelda. Um, the game's manual states that Pole's voice hate loud noises. This is a reference to the Japanese version of the game, where they can only be defeated by talking into the second controller's microphone. As the NES controllers do not feature a built-in microphone, their weakness was changed to arrows. However, the manual's description was translated literally and not edited to reflect this. Well, I hate you. <laughs> so okay I, I i have to admit something i also thought and i couldn't have told you why i thought this i thought that pole's voice were weak against sounds so i also tried using the flute against them and it also didn't work and now i know why they could have just made the flute the thing they're weak against come on that's such a crazy thing i i remember like i i, I know that that does seem like kind of the gimme solution to that doesn't it um, especially since you find them in the same dungeon. But yeah, I remember reading an article a few years back about like the differences between the Famicom and the NES and the reason that certain changes were made. And it was something about like when the console was getting approved and QC'd for release in North America, um, they didn't want to stumble into a situation where children were like shouting at their game controllers like – because right. because I guess the microphone didn't actually work that well in the Famicom version. Like it was a really finicky thing that only worked about 50% of the time that you did it. So. Yeah, I mean, in, in Japan, the Famicom was marketed more towards families. And in the U.S., it was marketed as a toy. Um, so that, that makes sense. So that would be a big difference there. Max, I believe you said you had a factoid you wanted to drop on us. Oh, yes. We were talking about Koji Kondo. Um so this game almost shipped without the, what we know today as the Zelda theme, the overworld theme song. They were going to use Ravel's Bolero, which is a piece of classical music that was in the public domain at the time. Ah. Or so they thought. So they actually built the game. Koji Kondo used Ravel's Bolero as the overworld theme for Zelda. And they found out like, right as they're about to finish up the game that the it wasn't going to enter the public domain until a few months after the game came out so they couldn't use it and he like pulled an all-nighter to come up with the zelda theme song in a rush well they did a great job i wonder if anything so iconic has ever been created again in the span of a night like i'm sure i'm sure it has but like geez well, that's cool. Thank you, Koji Kondo. I feel like what you what you unwillingly stumbled into was better than what you wanted to do in the first place. <laughs> so there you go. Um, so do either of you have anything else that you want to say about Dungeon 5 before we kind of move on from, from talking about it? I did not enjoy this dungeon. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, Max, now that you've actually kind of powered through it and, and completed it, do you have, I guess, more appreciation for it or more enjoyment in the playing of it than you than you previously did? Well, I, I did enjoy it more just because I didn't have this this wall I was beating myself against for hours before giving up in frustration on the whole game. 
which is a bad experience. So in that sense, I do. Um, I actually, I feel, I feel like there were some design mistakes made with this dungeon that, that made it way worse than it could have been even for its time, which is, which is basically the high ramp difficulty all of a sudden. Um, like this game would have been better if they didn't ramp it up so high, I think. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, I, I would say that I agree. Um, and I'm going to reserve judgment on this depending on what the difficulty climb is like in the dungeons that come after this one. We've got, I think three more left and then death mountain. Is that correct, Matt? Yes, because we uh, Death Mountain is num- number nine. Okay, cool. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what the difficulty climb is like as we sort of move into the to the back section of this game. For now, let's go ahead and get into part four, which is Bloopy Trails, uh, where we talk about interesting things that diverted our attention this week. Uh, Matt, do you want to let us know kind of what you what what <coughs> shenanigans you got up to between dungeons? Oh, I got up to so many shenanigans. Um, so I got lots of pieces of heart, actually. I think I got three in between, uh, dungeons four and five, um, including the one on the far eastern portion of the map where you have to use the ladder instead of the raft to traverse a couple things that look like they should be docks, but actually are not docks. Um, I got that one. I got the one in the, I think it's an ice cavern at the top of the map. Um, it's all white instead of the normal, like, uh, uh, brick color. So I got that one. Uh, I got the blue ring. I got the magic shield. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I just kind of wandered around. I went to the, you get the blue ring from the Armos, uh, special shop, which is underneath one of the Armos in the Western section of the map. Uh, so that one was kind of fun. Uh, I killed the red Lionel that's, uh, on death mountain. Um, after already defeating its older brother, the blue Lionel. Um, yeah, I, I think I did kind of a bit of exploring and had a good time in dungeon four. You can find another, uh, potion recipe that you can take to the, the lady potion maker. Um, so I went and did that. Seriously. Uh huh. Yeah. Did you not know that? No, I didn't get that. Yeah. So in dungeon four, it is in, where is that hold on one second while i look at phil's map i don't remember that at all and i don't see anything about it in the guide well i found another potion recipe and i'm 90 percent sure it was in dungeon four and took it to the potion lady and got another health potion which i then used there you go <sighs> so yeah that was uh those were kind of my bloopy trails did some uh exploration and upgrades oh and i mentioned i bought the magic shield yeah mine were highly similar i i had already had the magic shield i did get the blue ring i got the power bracelet as well i did not get the power bracelet um what in the world do you use it for i oh actually i do know you can move rocks with it and they take you to warp areas oh is that what those warp stones are yeah oh well that's kind of neat yeah so there you go um, got the power bracelet, discovered my first warp zone. And, uh, so I actually stumbled across the, um, the resting site of the magic sword as well, which is the most powerful nice. sword that you can get in this game. I had enough hearts to get it. And here's a fun thing that I did. I thought to myself, well, I've still got several dungeons left. I'm going to go ahead and not get this right now. <laughs> So that I can preserve the challenge and difficulty of the experience for myself, right? And then the immediate next thing that I did was walked into Dungeon 5 and just got 
just got curb stomped by blue dark nuts. So, <laughs> so I immediately regretted my decision. We'll be going to pick up the magic sword ASAP <laughs> because, <laughs> Oh, magic sword is next on my list. That sounds like a good thing to have. I uh, did get a few hearts as well. I got the one that you can only get by having the ladder off to the East side of the map. That was nice, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's really just what blue P trails kind of amount to in this game is heart collecting and, and one or two treasures in the overworld. Um, how about you, Max? Did you did you get up into yeah. any any side shenanigans between dungeons? So um, you already heard my big one, which was I, I totally abandoned my heroic quest to instead become a cartographer for a while um, and map the eastern half of Hyrule. Um, more relevant to this section of game, uh, this is slightly after. I won't give spoilers about the next dungeon, but. I ran into something that made me decide I was tired of having my ass handed to me. And I was like, uh, I haven't found a heart piece in a long time. So I'm going to just look it up. And I kind of looked up where all the heart pieces were. And I got them all. And I also got the uh, magic sword. Uh, And I finally, finally saved up enough rupees to go buy the, the blue ring, which I hadn't done yet. Nice. So I basically kitted myself out like crazy for the next leg of this journey. Awesome. You are, you're geared up and ready to get into the, to the real stuff. Yep. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and move on then into part five, which is Z targeting where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. I'm going to preempt everybody else. I don't know if any of y'all picked the same thing, but I'm just going to go with the blue dark nuts, which, uh, Screw those guys. Uh, they shall forever live in infamy. Um, yep. I'm giving them a place in Z targeting because I feel like they're formidable enough to where they deserve special mention here. But uh, yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, if this game has more frustrating enemies than those guys, then I, I shudder to think what they are. Yep. I totally agree. God, I hate those things. Matt, do you have a Z targeting for us? I do. I'm going to go with the Vires, actually. Um, so the Vires have a really cool iteration in Link's Awakening where they're the flying demon enemies. And I think they're a lot more fearsome and terrifying there. But in this uh, game, I want to give them uh, honorable mention for being just absolute cheap ass bitches for not dropping any items and also being somewhat not painful but annoying because when you kill them they then spawn two other enemies so not only are they cheap ass bitches they're annoying (laughs) as hell well hey that's what you got to bust out your boomerang for that one hits keys it does i did do that by the way also if you shoot an arrow and the keys happen to be in a line the arrow will go through both of them and kill them both which is also true for pole's voice which is really fun and i love doing that in the one in the one area in dungeon five where it's just a long room with three uh or with two rows of bricks so you end up with three paths that are just straight across and uh (laughs) the pole's voice generally will line up kind of in a pretty easy shooting gallery style pop 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 yeah that one's fun there you go max the time has uh, come for you to pick a z targeting i am going to pick impa who is one of i think only four named characters in this whole game um, but does not appear in the game instead appears only in the manual and supporting material uh apparently she's named impa because it's short for impart 
according to Miyamoto. Okay. Uh, huh. And her role is to impart information to Link to set him on his quest. And <laughs> just because she's here in this first game, she happens to be a like Zelda, Link, and Ganon. She's a character that reappears in like every Zelda game almost. Um, which I just think is kind of this neat, weird little thing about the, being in this game. Um, she raises a lot of questions about the nature of this land, right? Like, okay, there's a princess. The princess has a, a maid. Uh, there's all these legends and stuff, but like literally every human being in this place lives in a cave. Um, questions that go unanswered until Zelda 2. Those questions are answered in Zelda 2? To an extent. Okay. Yes. Well, I guess I'll put that on the very short list of things that I'm looking forward to in Zelda 2. <laughs> <laughs> also, I do think it's interesting now that you've said that that's the origin of her name is um, that that is her role in every Zelda game is she imparts information about the quest or about Zelda or about, you know, just the, the game in general um, to Link in every game that I could think of that she's in. I think that's correct. Yeah, she's basically her name is Info Dump and she dumps info. <laughs> uh, she has one job and she does it really, really, really well. For 35 side, years. <laughs> side note, in that same interview, he says Zelda, Z this one is well known. Zelda is named after Zelda Fitzgerald, Scott Fitzgerald's wife. Yep. Um, and Link is named Link not because, as is commonly thought, he's the link between the player and the, the game, but because the original vision for him as a character was that he would link people together across the ages. Um, because he, a little because he has no definable because he has no definable age so okay story time um there is to my knowledge one interview which was done in french and then so presumably translated from japanese to french and now i've read it translated from french to english where miyamoto describes that the original vision for the story of zelda one was that Link would be traveling through time to different time periods. And there's another interview where he says the thing about how he links the energy of people across the ages, which kind of corroborates that. So if this Japanese to French to English interview is to be believed, this was originally going to be a sci-fi game and the piece of the Triforce were going to be computer chips and there was going to be time <laughs> travel. <laughs> Well, it only took them another three games to actually get time travel in the series. So there you go. Yep. Neat. Very cool. Uh, I have only ever heard the one uh, interpretation of, of Link's name being what it is. And uh, I'm definitely glad to kind of hear an alternate take on that because I, I think that that actually is is a little bit more interesting. Honestly, I think as a, um, you know, as as the um, the genesis of of Link's name. So very cool. We appreciate that little tidbit. 
since we've got a few extraneous things that we want to talk about that are not necessarily related to the Sacred Realms rundown, I'm going to go ahead. I was going to remind you about that. You have something, and Max, you had some tidbits you wanted to throw out. Yep. So let's do that now. we got to leave room for it. Before we do, we've got to finish out the Sacred Realms rundown. We do that, of course, in part six, which is our final thoughts, where we let Matt summarize this section of the game in as succinct a way as he can possibly do. Yeah, so this section of the game is really just a, a further iteration upon what we've really explored throughout the first two sections. It's it's continuing to expand upon the exploration of the foothills of Death Mountain, uh, being able to get some really crucial upgrades to uh, explore the region with the magic shield, the blue shield, the raft, the ladder. All of these things really allow you to explore and upgrade Link in ways that you were previously unable to. Uh, we get two dungeons here, Snake being more or less pretty similar to the first three, but uh, Dungeon 5 really uh, drastically ramping up that difficulty very, very quickly um, with uh, another item that is crucial to the dungeon itself in the flute. Um, and, you know, I think we'll see whether or not that becomes useful throughout the rest of the game. We don't really know yet, but um, overall, I think uh, the first half of this section was really uh, just a further expansion upon the things that we've enjoyed about the game so far. And Dungeon 5 kind of puts us into a place that uh, can easily cause some frustration uh, with the drastic ramp up in difficulty and the uh, obtuseness of exploring the dungeon itself um, by introducing uh, the the movement uh, aspect by using underground uh, labyrinths. Uh, so I, I think that this is kind of uh, setting us up for a more difficult latter half of the game dungeon wise. Blue dark nuts can kiss our ass. <laughs> they absolutely that. can. Well, this brings us to the end of the Sacred Realms Rundown. We will, of course, be back next week with another installment of the Sacred Realms Rundown where we talk about two more dungeons. Before we get out of here for the week, Max, let's go ahead and tackle these these extra topics that we sort of wanted to get into. I've got one for you right off the top, and it's a question that I'm, I, I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on. Um, one thing that I've been thinking on a recurring basis while playing this game is that I've been curious to what extent a really awesome and fun version of this game could arise from being given either the Link's Awakening Switch remake treatment or even the Metroid Zero Mission treatment. Um, and I'm trying to figure out – I've been back and forth on this in my head over the last few days about whether or not I think there's enough game here to make that – kind of to, to get enough juice to make it worth the squeeze of, of doing that. Right. Um, and, and also it's kind of got me wondering if it's not inevitable for that to one day happen, uh, just because this is one of the most classic games of all time. And it's impossible to think that it won't be revisited in some way at some point. Um, it is a very interesting question. Uh, I don't, personally think it's going to happen um and and part of the, the rationale for that is basically that you can't modernize this game without changing its nature to a, a large extent um stuff like the pressing the sword button does a stab motion in front of you instead of a swinging motion like you see in other 2d zelda games like that's not gonna fly in a like luck lux remake um, people are gonna want combat that feels good and responsive and kind of more like what they expect. Um, 
And if you like, if you start changing something like that, you're changing how Link relates to all the enemies in combat. And and similarly, I don't think you could really do the the way secrets work, like with no clues, without drastically changing how this overworld works. I guess you put like cracks on walls and make trees look different if they're burnable. Um, but at that point, you're like not leaving a lot of a lot of the original. What I think is more likely is for them to do spiritual successors, right? Um, and the difference between a remake and a spiritual successor can be pretty thin. Like, they talk in interviews about The Link Between Worlds being a remake of Link to the Past, even though we think of it more as a sequel. Right. Um, but it's the same world, so eh, who knows? Um, so I think that direction is more likely. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah, just something I've been idly thinking about. And I think I I kind of align with your thoughts where I just don't know that there is enough. um, Like with the Link's Awakening remake, you know, even though it has a fair amount of modernization to it in terms of its aesthetic and like the feel of the minute to minute gameplay, it still is existing on basically the exact functionality of the original. And I just don't know that that would be possible to do in a fun way with this. So I think I agree with you, but it is just something I've been kind of wondering, like, huh, I I wonder, like, I think the the Metroid Zero mission thing kind of gets me a little bit more than the Link's Awakening thing, because, you know, Zero Mission was a a Game Boy Advance remake of the original Metroid. And, uh, you know, it is a very similar game to the original Metroid, just with some extra fun stuff added in. So, yeah, I, and they and they actually made relatively big like mechanical changes in Zero Mission. Um, yeah, and I, I I think I think you're right. I think I think to do that with this game would kind of eviscerate really what it is. So maybe maybe it is definitely better that they don't do that. But anyway, just just something I've been thinking about a little bit. So. Anywho, just something I wanted yeah. to give voice to before we got too much further into the season. I mean, you could you could almost think of uh, Breath of the Wild. There's some quotes. Sorry, I always talk about quotes. Um, but they, the, the technical director, art director, and game director of Breath of the Wild talk in an interview about how they were explicitly trying to just make the experience of Zelda 1 in 3D. That was like their goal with Breath of the Wild. Um, so, you know... It's kind of like that's what a 3D remake of Zelda one brought up to today's standards looks like. So your answer to my question is that I've already gotten the thing I'm asking about. Absolutely. There you go. (laughs) How does that feel, Lyndon? Cool. I mean, feels good because we got Breath of the Wild. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) I consider myself a winner in this arrangement. Which is currently uh, sitting snugly at the number one spot. That it is. All right, Max, you said you had a few things you wanted to canvas, so I'm going to give you a minute to do that. So I already mentioned some of the facts I was going to throw out there, like the Ravel's Bolero and the name meanings and futuristic things. So that leaves this one last thing, which is super interesting piece of history about Zelda 1. So in Japan, they released the Famicom, family computer. Uh, That was the console they had for a while, Super Mario Brothers and whatnot. Um, Then they released in the U.S. the NES. And the NES and the Famicom are actually pretty different machines. Like they are not just they don't they aren't the same thing. It's just a different case. They actually have different tech inside of them. Um, and then a year afterwards, they released the Famicom Disk System in Japan only. 
Um, so in Japan, there's a version of the Famicom where you have essentially floppy disks. And the reason they built this is because floppy disks are writable. Um, the Essentially, the launch title for Famicom Disk System was Zelda 1, which is kind of famous for being the first NES generation game to have saving on the cartridge. Um, in On the disk system, the saving was because, you know, they could write directly to the disk. On the NES, it was because they added in, they basically like welded on this extra bit of save tech onto the chip, um, which is like the thing that needs save batteries and stuff on NES games. Yeah. Even, um, even though that saving process is impossible to replicate in the Switch version. <laughs> is it? Yeah, because the, the so I googled this for hours. I was like trying to figure out how do I save my game within the game because I'm just oh, using yeah. I'm just using save states. And everywhere says in the Legend of Zelda, the way that you save it is that you have to press a combination of buttons on your second controller, and that's how you do it. And obviously, that's not an option that's available to you on the on the Switch version. You have the option when you die. The game over screen has a save option. Yeah, I don't want to die to have to save. <laughs> yeah, that's really annoying. <laughs> um, so anyways, long story short, because Zelda 1 was originally built as a game to sell this new disk system that had the capability of saving, that was its selling point, they wanted to really focus on saving as a major feature of the game. So Zelda 1 was originally being built and designed as a dungeon maker game where the player could had a map editor to make dungeons in the game. Um, and so they built this to an extent at least, and they decided that uh, making a map wasn't the fun part. Playing the dungeons was the fun part. So they decided to convert it into a game that was about playing dungeons. So for a little while, so the one was only dungeons, um, no overworld. And then they decided like relatively late in development to add the overworld to the game. So uh, we almost got Zelda 1 as a dungeon maker game only. <laughs> so you're saying that all the people who are online every day asking for Nintendo to make a Zelda maker almost got it right out the gate. Yep. Dang. Well, there you go. I think we've talked on this show before with you, Max, about how it's pretty unlikely that we'll ever actually get something like that in the future, right? Yeah, I have, I have a hard time imagining a way it could work. Um, maybe somebody smarter than me, like the people who make Zelda for a living could come up with a way to do it. (laughs) I can't see it though. Well, that is actually super interesting. That's really cool to know. I think it's fun hearing about all the little ways that pieces fell into place that I'm sure felt like afterthoughts or, um, I guess uncomfortable necessities at the time when they were making this game, but now are things that we, can't separate from what we consider to be the Zelda formula. Um, I've heard a lot of different stories, um, both tonight and other places about the way that this game came together that are kind of in that vein. And I think that's one of the most special things about it is just, uh, knowing how close this game was to not being anything like what we consider a Zelda game to be now. So. Yeah, absolutely. So we do have one question real quick that we got from our Discord channel for you, Max. This comes from Drew Sprayberry, uh, who wants to know, in what ways has The Legend of Zelda influenced you as a game designer? Oh, so many ways. Um, (laughs) It's hard to extricate 
stuff I've learned in other ways from stuff I learned from Zelda. Because Zelda to me is the is always the first thing I think about when I think about game design concepts. Like if I read in a game design book, like about some, you know, you know, you want to have things that are timed like this and feedback happens at this point in, you know, the animation, I immediately, the first examples I think of are from Zelda games because I'm obsessed. Um, so that's one way that it's hard to extricate, but in a more general sense, as a game designer, I care a lot about stuff like, how do players navigate in spaces? Um, how do they know where to go? How do they, what, what sort of things catch their interests and what techniques are people using to catch player interest while they're traveling through space? Um, and like, that's kind of always just been a focus of mine. Not, not professionally. My job has rarely been to do that stuff, but it is a, it's a thing I think about all the time as a game designer. And I've managed to build a skill set around that half through just general game design experience and half through just obsessing on those questions forever. Um, so it, it kind of shows itself in the way I approach problem solving um, all the time in, in, in most game design situations for me. Gotcha. So uh, <laughs> I was about to sarcastically ask Dungeons and Destiny 2 when, and then I remembered we have those. Yeah, I was about to yeah. say, uh, there are like four of them. Yeah. <laughs> they have bosses and everything. They yeah. do, and many bosses. Yeah. Multiple. <laughs> we, don't, we don't really shit. have the, you know, the Metroidvania component so much because we have you know whole investment game instead where you gain get items and they level up and you level up like it's kind of doesn't really fit the way our game works so in that way we still don't really have zelda dungeons but in every other way we basically have dungeons already <laughs> well there you go well cool uh Obviously, a very thoughtful answer to that question. Drew, thanks for writing in with that one. Um, obviously, you know, uh, whenever we've got somebody on the show, uh, Max, with kind of your level of not only professional experience, but also um, knowledge around the subject matter, like it's it's always very interesting to poke into like, uh, you know, uh, the, the little interesting ways that this has sort of influenced you as a person who who makes video games and who designs the mechanics in video games. I know. I, I know technically like everyone who works at Bungie is making a video game, but the actual design and the philosophy behind the minute to minute gameplay is, um, is definitely a thing that I think, um, it's, it's cool to hear that even though destiny is a very different game than, uh, Zelda, that there will always be things about Zelda that your brain kind of goes back to whenever you're doing work for a completely different kind of video game experience. Yep. Oh, uh, and our game director, there's a lot of people at Bungie that also love Zelda, like you, Lyndon, but uh, our game designer, Joe Blackburn, like he has a Wind Waker tattoo on his leg. Um, he talks about that on Twitter all the time, how he loves Zelda. So it's it's a it's a common thing in the game industry, throughout the game industry, for people who love Zelda to be making, involved in every game you might play. Somebody who worked on it loved Zelda and it influenced their thinking. I need to ping him. <laughs> just for funsies like hey joe guess what you want to be on a zelda podcast <laughs> wow oh my gosh that would be unreal well i'll i'll save i'll shoot that shot when we get to wind waker whenever that may yeah. happen he'll, oh, say, he'll say yes i'm pretty sure he'll say yes i mean i'm i'm down 
We will see <laughs> we'll what see happens. that happens. We'll <laughs> and just like that, Wind Waker becomes our next 3D game that everyone votes on, which it probably was going to be anyway. If we're I mean, honest. most likely, mostly because I haven't played it and people want to know what my reactions are. Yeah. Well, guys, this has been a really great episode. I think we need to wrap this one up and get out of here because... Okay, so uh, my my computer is running a little low on battery, but I think I've got just enough left to do the outro and get a five-star review read on the show. Matt, who does this five-star review come from? This one comes from Cat Lockwood. It's titled, My Favorite Zelda Podcast Hands Down. And it says, as the title says, My Favorite Zelda Podcast. Linda and Matt do a great job discussing with great brotherly banter the section they played that week and often bring knowledgeable guests to dissect the section even further and the primary example of that being and the reason i wanted to bring it to the show this week is because max nichols is one of the best at helping us dissect those sections of game every time he's on so thank you max for your contribution to the show and always helping us add another layer to our uh, otherwise amateur brotherly banter style of podcasting i think we're transcending from amateur into slightly informed i don't know i don't feel like i will ever be more than an amateur and maybe that's an inferiority complex i have but there you go well we're certainly not going to unpack that on this podcast that's for you to do on your own time (laughs) (laughs) but but fascinating nonetheless max seriously thank you so much for coming on again man we'll have you back on um you know, definitely as we get further into season six, whether it be again in the Legend of Zelda or as we get into Zelda two, um, we'll we'll definitely catch back up with you um, as we continue our eight bit journey and uh, and see where we land with everything. Absolutely. Thanks for having me once again. Shan't be the last time, as always. Let's go ahead and get into our outro and close this one out for the week. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple Podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show. That makes us very happy Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at sacredrealmspod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on The Legend of Zelda Chapter 4, covering Dungeons 5 and 6. We'd love for you to play along with... Oh, excuse me. Dungeons 6 and 7. There you go. My bad. We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. The Legend of Zelda can be played in a variety of places, most notably on the Nintendo Entertainment System, on the uh, Nintendo NES Mini, on a variety of Nintendo eShops, and of course on the Nintendo Switch online service, which is the version that Matt and I are playing. In the meantime, may your hearts be full, may your arrows never miss. We will catch y'all next time. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences. 